Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am going to meet someone for the very first time today that is ridiculously talented. And <laughs> I'm looking at her resume going, oh, come on, this is just too much. She does it all. And she's written a book called Why Bad Looks Good, Biblical Wisdom to Make Smart Choices in Life, Love, and Friendship. Dr. Wendy Patrick is my guest. Wendy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, I mean, you got a pretty impressive resume, <laughs> if I may say so. Uh, PhD in theology, public speaker, uh, and a concert violinist, just to name a few. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things I think I'm most proud of is my relationship with Jesus Christ and how he has enabled me to diversify, <laughs> yeah, if you will, in so many different areas. And, you know, this book really is a culmination of my just incessant praying on, can you please have me not just so scattered in so many different directions, but really figure out how to tailor what's important and come up with something that will have not only Christian but secular appeal and the the why bad looks good analogy. Boy, isn't that something that all of your listeners and myself and you and anybody else can really relate to? Oh, no kidding. So I want to get some biblical wisdom to improve uh, my perception of people and the world around me. And I need, I need help. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) seriously, Wendy, this is even affecting me as early as 15 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's true. There's there's not a day that goes by that we don't make a decision that's based on emotion, that's based on chemistry, <laughs> all of the different yeah. ways in which we are just unduly influenced by the world instead of staying in the word. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So uh in your book, you, you really want to help people um identify healthy sources of power and to surround Uh, with trustworthy people. And I think, boy, isn't that great wisdom? Say more about that. Well, you know, like my parents used to say, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. All right. There's really some biblical wisdom and practical wisdom in, you know, you may be unduly influenced by the company you keep. Um, Bad character corrupts. I mean, that's straight from the Bible. There's Old Testament. There are so many verses. And that's one of the reasons I broke this book down into 26 chapters is, you know, some people who haven't read the Bible think, well, what can it possibly tell me on such and such topic? Well, I intentionally chose 26 areas, everything from when lust looks like love, when frenemies look like friends, the loose of reputation, all the way through the rapture of riches, you know, how many lottery winners go broke, in order to address the fact that many people won't read the Bible, many Christians won't, it's too daunting to think, oh, I'm going to have to open it Genesis and close it at Revelation, I'm never going to get through it. So at the very least, these are really uh, some highlights of how Scripture addresses all of the most important issues in life, from money to marriage, health to happiness, gossip to greed. Everything is bolstered by biblical wisdom, if you take the time to look. Yeah, so well said. 
Dr. Wendy Patrick is my guest. Her book is Why Bad Looks Good. I think you probably just gave some great illustrations of why bad looks good. Um, Maybe we can talk a a little bit about Chapter 5 when you say, when you hear what you want to hear. Oh, for sure. So sometimes we are drawn to people that make us feel good. This is why this is when bad feels good. They affirm us. They make us feel desirable and smart and insightful and special and unique. And sometimes it's authentic, which might be a match made in heaven if that's true, but it is not always authentic. When somebody is telling us things, the, the bittersweet nothings, wanting us to feel a certain way, we ought to stop and think, you know, remember that age old question when somebody's buttering you up a little too much, you say, okay, what do you want? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not always a bad question, mm-hmm. especially if you don't know somebody well enough. You know, I came up with this book because after all, almost 30 years in law enforcement work, prosecuting crime, working with victims, I saw the same pattern over and over. Both men and women were seduced by a silver tongue. And you you can say anything and make it sound sensational and seductive. And if manipulators are smart enough, the flattery gets you everywhere, so to speak. And, you know, you trade in your reading colored glass, your, your reading glasses for rose colored glasses and all bets are off. Yeah. But wait, there's more. You've heard that before, <laughs> haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so... When we talk about uh, idols, and of course, you know, I think it was Augustine that said our, our hearts are idol manufacturing facilities. We always are wanting more, don't we? Well, that's right. And, you know, that's one of the re- reasons that, you know, people that have too much money or have too much success, they're always afraid of losing what they have and they can never have enough. I mean, think about it. If all we did is compare ourselves to somebody that's above us, then where would that end? I mean, there, there's always going to be somebody more popular, prettier. And as everybody ages, it's only going to get worse. What a concept to think about anchoring your identity in the timeless creator of the universe. Boy, you talk about a self-esteem booster to realize as a child of God, that's your identity. That's your citizenship. And I love your the quote about the idol maker because it's true. Some people have idols that on, you know, maybe on the outside don't seem like it would be such a bad thing, you know, volunteer work and, and giving to charity, but anything can become an idol if focus becomes fixation. It takes the place of Jesus and where the Lord should be in our lives. Thinking about it that way really puts it into perspective, doesn't it? It sure does. Um, Dr. Wendy Patrick is my guest. Now, Wendy, just I want to go through this resume one more time. You have a PhD in theology, you're a lawyer, and you're a concert violinist. I mean, just for starters, I want to know, your parents did a lot of things right. Oh, well, you know what they I had the kind of parents that say, you know, you can do anything you want to do. But the interesting segue my life took mid career was kind of a surprise to my mother. My dad was already in heaven. But for whatever reason, I'd been a prosecutor for about 15 years and God called me to go to seminary. And my mother, who always told me I could do whatever I wanted to do, had to ask, why? <laughs> Why would you do this? You'd go back to school and take, you know, a year of biblical Greek and a year of biblical Hebrew and write more term papers and take exams. I didn't want to do all that work, but, you know, you just don't say no when God calls you to do something. And I did. And then that led to 
going forth, forth from that and getting earning a PhD in theology and then starting down the long road of becoming formally ordained, mm-hmm. uh, which I did. Wow. Um, boy, you don't you certainly learn the word when you are studying for an ordina- ordination sitting, which was very rigorous, by the way. I would say it was harder than the bar exam. <laughs> wow. But, you know, the biblical wisdom aspect of it, God really put on my heart focus on what's most important in life. I mean, I think my symphony practices in ministry, I think the law is a ministry, but writing this book was a ministry too. Even the process of putting together what really matters to people, people of all stripes, all demographic backgrounds and all faith backgrounds. And these 26 chapters were designed to have a little bit of appeal to everybody. Mm-hmm. So Wendy, uh, let's talk a little bit about chapter 11, when less looks like more and the infatuation mm. of intrigue. Okay, so this goes back to my um, days growing up with James Bond movies and the you know the allure of secret agents and all of the all of the glamour of the secret subculture. Mm-hmm. When you're building a relationship with somebody, less is not more. You need to know far more about somebody that you are, even if it's you're going into business with them. Why? Because if you like the other person, if they are attractive and charismatic and they're credentialed, what are you going to do with the information in the areas you don't have? You're going to fill them in favorably. That's so true. I cannot tell you how many victims I've spoken to that have said, I wanted, I pictured him as this. Um, I wanted to believe she was this, that, and the other. Well, of course you did because of the way they made you feel. I call this choosing the right kind of high. Uh, Seductive selective attention is to blame for attributing positive characteristics to somebody that you know very little about. And that's, you know, the infatuation of intrigue explains a lot of poor decision-making that goes on in building relationships with somebody you just don't know well enough. Like you said, but there's more. Yes, (laughs) yes, there is. Figure it out. Yeah. I'm just doing a late night infomercial for you. Wendy, that's all I was doing. Yeah. All right, chapter 14, when lust looks like love. I know you got something to say about that. Well, that's right. And, you know, one of the reasons we see so many marriages break up and we see so many relationships break up is sometimes people don't wait to actually let love develop. Love doesn't develop overnight. Lust probably can develop in an hour or less. When, you know, when you see somebody across a crowded room, you don't fall in love at first sight. That's just not the way the Bible explains the way love develops between a couple, uh, even between friends. Remember, you lay your life down for your friends. They, you know, you, you stick close to your friends. It, it requires getting to know somebody. Why? We, we're not to be yoked to unbelievers. And how in the world do you know anything about anybody unless you take the time to let love develop? I always teach this to the young people that, you know, are rushing into relationships, sadly, and in so many different ways, getting into trouble. You know, if you wait and go slow, that allows respect, attention, trust, these things to develop. And you know what that gives you? That gives you that warm, glowing feeling about somebody else. Let me give you a very practical reason that lust should not be mistaken for love. I can tell you lots of people, myself included, that have sort of gotten to know somebody, you're getting that kind of feeling of butterflies, but there's that unsettled notion that there's something wrong. God gave us that instinct for a reason. And if you rush into a lustful infatuation scenario, what you're going to be doing is silencing or muting your innate warning signal that this person isn't right for you. Mm. Oh, so you transform 
rose-colored glasses into reading glasses. Well, that's exactly right. You know, you're, you're most objective at first meeting, at first impression, on a first date. When you start to get to know somebody, they start to make you feel good. They sound good. They look good on paper. All of the ways in which we build relationships, you're more likely as time goes on to trade in your reading glasses for rose-colored glasses. What does that mean? It means you're going to mute the red flags you see. Mm -hmm. You are going to turn what should sound like alarm bells into the faint tinkling of wind chimes (laughs) because you don't want to see these red flags. I can tell you a lot of times, you know, when in retrospect, people will say, it's not that I didn't see the red flags. I saw them on the first date. I didn't want to see the red flags. So I did what I needed to do to minimize, to rationalize, to self-blame, all the different ways in which victims and, and, you know, people in bad relationships justify staying with somebody they know they shouldn't. I'd say the same thing in the professional world. Many people work someplace that they know they shouldn't be. It's not a good fit. They don't get along with the boss. Maybe the money's not even that good. But they have to make a choice. Do I just get along with what I'm seeing and the the standards that are below me? Or do I decide, you know what, I'm putting those reading glasses back on and I'm moving on? Mm -hmm. All right, Wendy, let me take a little break. Dr. Wendy Patrick is my guest. Her book is Why Bad Looks Good, Biblical Wisdom to Make Smart Choices in Life, Love, and Friendship. And I've got this book in my hand, and I have to tell you, it is fun to hold. It is a gorgeous book. It is really pretty. Uh, You can go check it out at Amazon.com right now. We're going to take a break, but before we go to break, if you have not uh, gotten your Faith Radio app, oh, do it now. I mean, you got 90 seconds during the break, so just go and get your app. Text the word app to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll send you a link. You click the link, you have the app. It's a sweet deal. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. I know that everyone listening wants to be able to overcome deception with biblical perception. We want to take the wisdom of God's Word and apply it so we don't misjudge situations. If you've been betrayed by a friend or a co-worker or even a love interest, maybe you went into it with rose-colored glasses and you filled in the blanks because you you were getting uh, to know someone in in love or business and you wanted the best and believed the best and you started filling in all kinds of blanks versus taking your time. And that's why uh, Wendy wrote this book called Why Bad Looks Good because bad can look good a lot of the time. Uh, Wendy, if you would, talk about the illusion of intelligence. Well, you know, most of us know very smart people, and we tend to, again, attribute it to other positive qualities. If somebody's smart, you rely on them. You, you want to overlook other negative characteristics because you benefit from, let's say, a friendship, a mentorship, somebody who's a role model that's very, very smart. However, there is nothing about intelligence that equates 
to biblical wisdom. Wisdom and intelligence are two very different things. I mean, artificial intelligence is not real, yet we somehow think that when humans have that kind of intelligence, that they must have a lot of other public, you know, qualities that are popular, that are very um, public facing, they are, you know, coveted, when none of that equals somebody you should be getting involved in. In fact, I would hate, I hate to say this, but smart people are often the worst manipulators because they're smart enough to strategize how to fool you. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. Uh, I love a comment you made, and I've already lost it, but uh, true wisdom doesn't come from Harvard. It comes from heaven. <laughs> right. I love that. All right, let's talk about first impressions. Everybody wants to make a good first impression, and we only have one chance to make a good first impression. So what are we learning about first impressions, and how can we avoid why bad looks good? Well, I love that you queued it up the way that you do, because part of biblical wisdom is overcoming a first impression. Because, again, misjudging a book by its cover, sometimes somebody does make a great first impression on you. But then... When you go back and you pray about it and you look at scripture and maybe you look online and see if everything they said was true or not, you fact check them, uh, you know, trust, then verify, as we say in criminal law, you realize your first impression was fallacious. So when we are the ones striving to make a first impression, we've got to be on our best behavior because we are ambassadors for Christ. So this is kind of a two-way street. Uh, there, there, we gain nothing by not using biblical wisdom ourselves when we are presenting ourselves to others, but it's also true that we can overcome bad first impressions that we make with the help of the Lord, and we can, uh, let's say, rejudge, if we've misjudged, the first impression we've formed of somebody else. Once we really step back and said, but wait, there's more. Let's look at the fruits of this person's life and not just what they have to say. Mm-hmm. Because first impressions, if you're good at making them, uh, they, they can be very deceptive. They can be very deceptive. It's also very easy to be deceptive at first impression. You know, I always give the example of, you know, I've, many of my the sex offenders I've prosecuted over the years, sexually violent predators, rapists, bank robbers, all these different nasty kinds of people that have committed these horrible crimes. Well, wow, when you see them in the courtroom, you would think you can't distinguish them from their lawyer. They're both sitting there in three-piece suits. They have matching briefcases. In other words, the fallacy of first impression doesn't allow you to make a distinction because anyone can dress the part. And that is one of the main reasons you have to catch yourself. I know it's tough. I do it myself. Uh, You know, it's like that scene in Pretty Woman that we talk about in the realm of, you know, the human trafficking, sex crimes world about how you you misjudge by first impressions where she goes into the dress store and nobody will wait on her because of what she's wearing. She comes back the next day dressed like a million bucks and they're falling all over themselves to show her the clothing. We treat others based on what we see. Uh, Seat fillers at the Oscars. You know, you get men and women that will go for free to look like celebrities and sit there for the cameras. Nobody can tell the difference. Right. This is one of the reasons we have to do more than just look. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, the seat fillers, attractive people that sit there and and look like they're uh, important. It's a great way to get to see the show for free. Yeah, it it really is. Um, Okay, now I want to go back to first impressions. Um, because when you uh, tell me something about yourself, Wendy, all I know is what you share with me, and I have no idea if it's true. <laughs> yes, you do, because I'm all over the Internet. <laughs> well, no, but, but I'm saying I meet you in a coffee shop, and, you're, and we're in line, and you're telling me something, and 
I don't know that it's not true. Exactly. Because and you're all not I know is what you tell me. Either. You're not going to fact check me either. I can't. Because, well, it, here's, a, here's another really sort of interesting, almost counterintuitive reason that you wouldn't, whether or not you could. It's cognitively more difficult to doubt. So it's easier. It's easier on us. I mean, who wants to like be thinking in the line waiting for your coffee? Oh, I'm going to go home and I'm going to fact check on the internet everything this person says. Right. We don't do that. When we meet at cocktail parties, church picnics, all the different places we meet people, we don't go back and, and fact check everything they say and, and, you know, corroborate that. We would do nothing else. So the fantasy of first impressions is where that fallacy comes from. You know, we listen, we look, we, you know, sort of engage a little bit. We see what kind of a tip they give when the barista hands them their coffee. You know, some of the most famous manipulators have been great tippers because it's Mm -hmm. that illusion of public perception. But remember what we learned in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith, not by sight. You know, that's why the wrong person was almost chosen for to lead Israel. I mean, you know, you just, you look at, you know, well, he looks like a king. David didn't look like a king. We all make that mistake. And as you point out, when you meet somebody in a social setting, maybe you don't even know their name, maybe just their first name. I know most people don't even give their first names when they order coffee at Starbucks because they value their privacy. Mm-hmm. You know, you have very little to go on, except you learn a little bit about their personality in a natural setting. And I think that's worth something. Mm -hmm. In chapter 25, you talk about when busyness looks like business and when activity is unproductive. Say more about that. Oh, so you can be absolutely productive in a very short period of time, and you can be unproductive all day long, pushing papers around your desk or at the office with the door closed watching pornography, which is a big problem, as Mm -hmm. our listeners probably know in this day and age. Uh, And everybody understands the value of hard work, but I'm always driven to the Proverbs 31, the perfect wife, right? The gets up early in the morning, you know, sews and, you know, clothes her family, uh, considers a field and buys it. Productivity is is valued far more than simply being busy. You know, you can be busy all day long doing good things. You can be volunteering at the church, and you can be in children's ministry, and this, that, and the other, and never find time to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know what I always say is taking the time to read the Bible in the morning will save you time during the course of your day, because after I pray in the morning, I say, Lord, please focus me and allow me supernaturally to accomplish more in a shorter block of time because I'm overwhelmed. I'm busy. I have all these deadlines coming up. And amazing if he won't do just that because you sacrificed time that maybe other people would say, well, I don't have that kind of time. You gave it to him and he'll give it back to you tenfold Mm -hmm. with interest. Yeah. Wendy, my last question. Do you sleep more than two hours a night? (laughs) You know, I try to sleep about six or seven (laughs) um, because, as you know, you can't have a silver tongue if you haven't had enough sleep. And I I literally talk for a living. So that's a great question to end on. Thank you for your your book and your time today. It's been a delight. Uh, Likewise. Have a nice weekend. You as well. Thank you so much. Dr. Wendy Patrick has been my guest. Her book is called Why Bad Looks Good, Biblical Wisdom to Make You Smart, to Make Smart Choices in Life, Love, and Friendship. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute.
Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. My guest, Ray Comfort, answers questions that people are asking all the time. Like, does God hear my prayers? He's written over 100 books. He's the founder and CEO of Living Waters. And the book that I'm going to talk to him about today is called How to Make Sure God Hears Your Prayers. Ray, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Appreciate it. Oh, it's uh, my uh, my delight. So I love the title of this book, This How to Make Sure God Hears Your Prayers. I know you write a lot of books, and you've written, I think, close to 100 or more. What uh, What intrigued you about this book? Well, whether or not God answers prayer doesn't really matter unless you're hanging over a thousand foot cliff by your teeth or you're upside down at 20,000 feet in severe turbulence, then it matters. And most non-Christians take it for granted that God hears everything, but they don't understand that the scriptures make it clear there are certain conditions for God to regard our prayers. If you want to chat with King Charles, you don't show up in your pajamas. There's certain etiquette. And there are certain biblical etiquettes that we must take place, and we must not, um, we must acknowledge when we look at Scripture. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Bible says, the Lord will not hear. Our sins make a separation between us and our God, so He will not hear. Obviously, God is omniscient, so He hears and sees everything. But the Bible tells us He'll take no regard unless we uh, conform to what Scripture tells us to do. Ray, you say in your book that the uh, the image of a God who smiles at sin, whose patience is infinite and inexhaustible, only exists in the minds of those who lack the fear of the Lord. They choose to ignore the knowledge of God given to us in Holy Scripture. I would love for you uh, to talk about what it means to fear the Lord. Yeah, and the Bible says of Jesus, he was heard in that he feared. I think that is more than just a reverence. You talk to most non-Christians, and I've got an idolatrous understanding of God's character and nature. The image of God is one of that long-haired guy sitting on a cloud uh, with a pink nightie reaching out and playing touch fingers with Adam. That's the image of God. It's nothing like the image that's revealed in Scripture. Listen to what Jesus said about God, and this, this is just so offensive to the world. He said this, Fear not him who has power to kill your body, and afterwards do no more, but fear him who has power to kill your body and cast your soul into hell. So the, the non-Christian must realize that if he lacks the fear of God, he'll give himself to sin because the scriptures say, through the fear of the Lord being depart from evil. I, I'm originally from New Zealand. I've been living in the U.S. for, I think, nearly 40 or 30, 34 years. That's why I've almost lost my accent. And in New Zealand, <laughs> in New Zealand the police didn't have guns. They would have sticks or batons, and if a criminal was naughty, they would hit him. And England did the same for many years, just batons with the police. They've now got guns, but when I came to the U.S., I had an advantage over open-air preachers. Uh, When I came here, when a police officer would walk up to me because he didn't like what I was doing, wanted me to move, I would say to myself, he's got a gun. That's all I could see. I couldn't see anything else but his gun. And I say to myself, this man could kill me legally if he feels threatened in some way, if I move too quickly or reach in my pocket to get a track to give him or something like that, I could die. So I've always been tremendously congenial with the police, very, very nice. And whatever they want, I do. I jump to it. Over a dozen times I've been stopped from open air preaching by police and always 
when they come up and say, I'd like you to stop, I immediately stop. And I say, what would you like me to do, officer? Move over there. And whatever they want, I do, because he's got a gun. It's more than a reverence I have for the police. It's a fear of what he can do to me. And that's what Jesus is saying about the fear of God. Fear not him who has power to kill your body and afterwards do no more, but fear him who has power to kill your body and cast your soul into hell. And so the non-Christian must realize if they don't fear God, they should fear him for what he, sh- what he can do to them. And let me tell you something a little personal, but it really brings out the power of the fear of God and what it can do for us. When I was 16, this was six years before I became a Christian, I found myself in the back of a dance hall at night in a long grass with a gorgeous 16-year-old female. And my, my intentions were not honorable. I was a non-Christian, no fear of God. But she put the fear of God in me with just six words. This is what she said. She said, you know what? God's watching us. And it was like Whoa. a bucket of ice fell from the heavens just <laughs> caused me to steam stand up and say well let's go back inside and i look back and the fear of god even as a non-christian caused me to depart from evil as the bible says i i could have got her pregnant i could have brought shame to her family shame to my family and maybe even instigated an abortion i don't know but i look back and i say thank god for the fear of the lord which is the beginning of wisdom and that's what needs to be intermingled in our prayers, a, a trembling, a reverence, an awe of God. But the non-Christian must have a little bit more and, uh, and, and realize what God will do if we're not obedient to the gospel. Ray Comfort is my guest. He's the founder and CEO of Living Waters, best-selling author of over 100 books. And we're chatting about his book today, How to Make Sure God Hears Your Prayers. Uh, Ray, I love that you talk about the fear of the Lord you know, is, is a way of life. So how, how can we encourage us, how can you encourage us to, when we're facing temptation and sin, just the way you were with that 16-year-old girl? Yeah, to cultivate the fear of God. One way to do it would be to move to Texas so you can experience a thunderstorm and look at the lightning and let it scare the living daylights out because everything's <laughs> bigger in Texas. Or you could read Scripture with an open heart, searching for what the Scriptures say about God's character and nature. You could read about Uzzah, how he reached out and touched the Ark of the Covenant and God killed him because he wasn't supposed to do that. Or read how Ananias and Sapphira told one lie, and God killed them. Uh, or he didn't like what a man did sexually in Genesis 38, so the Lord killed him. Or he consider what happened with Moses. He said, God, let me see your glory. And God says, you can't see me and live. He says, I'll tell you what I'll do. This is a comfort paraphrase. He says, I'll put you in the cleft of a rock, and I'll let my goodness pass you by. What does that mean? Would God's goodness kill Moses? Doesn't make sense. Until you think of a court of law where a judge has before him a criminal that's murdered uh, an 11 year old girl after he sexually molested her, strangled her to death. If that judge is a good judge, if he has goodness in his heart, he will be furious at that criminal and he'll bring down his gavel in wrath. <clears throat> and the Bible says God is so good, he so believes in justice and righteousness. His wrath abides on us. And every time we sin, we store up his wrath. Like an L.A. freeway chase, you get the commentators say, look at that, guys, wrong side of the road. Oh, oh, he's just gone through a stop sign. He's making it worse for himself every time he transgresses the law. And that's what the unsaved person is doing. That's what sinners are doing every time they sin. Lust, hatred, anger, greed, pride, jealousy, all these things store up God's wrath. It's going to be revealed on the day of wrath when they stand before his absolute perfect goodness, which demands justice. That's a fearful thing. And when we cultivate that sort of biblical understanding, 
It naturally brings a fear of God into our heart so that when we're tempted to look at pornography and the pleasure it gives men or women, or when we're tempted to listen to gossip, we won't because the fear of God causes us to depart from evil. Ray, uh, I've watched so many of your videos where you're going out and speaking to people, and I find your your giftedness just through the roof. I know a lot of it has come through practice, so uh, you didn't learn that overnight. But the Bible also says that that the Scripture is foolishness to those who are perishing. So a lot of people say a lot of foolish things, and when it comes to the consequences of sin, it seems pretty stupid to them. How do we do a better job of impressing upon them that there is a spiritual reality that they may be scoffing at? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the Bible says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that perish. And there's a reason it's foolishness. It's because we haven't preceded it with what the Bible tells us to. The scriptures say the law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And so when we open up the Ten Commandments as Jesus did and show what sin is, then the gospel will make sense. Let me give an analogy. A doctor looks at a patient, and the, and the patient believes he's completely healthy. He's fit, he's young, he's healthy. But the doctor knows, because he's seen x-rays, that this guy is going to be dead in two weeks. There is a cancerous poison disease that's seeping through his system. So what's the doctor going to do? He has a cure for the patient. Is he going to give him the cure? No, that would be foolish. He wouldn't give him a cure while he thinks he's healthy. The guy's going to say, what do you give me this cure for? I don't need this cure. I'm healthy. Get it out of my face. I don't want it. It's going to be foolishness to him. He's going to reject it, not appreciate it or appropriate it. So if the doctor knows what he's doing and he's a good doctor, he'll pick up the x-rays, get the attention of the guy and say, look at this. This is a poison that's seeping through your system. He's going to try and make him fearful. He wants to see sweat come to his brow. He wants to see him tremble so that the patient will say, Yikes, I can see this is deadly serious. What should I do? Then he brings out the cure. Then it will make sense. Then the patient will appreciate it and appropriate it. And what we have done with our modern evangelistic methods is held up the cure. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He took the punishment for our sins. People say, what are you talking about? Sin, I don't need your silly religion. Get it out of my face. Don't ram it down my throat. Why? because we haven't convinced of the disease so they'll appreciate and appropriate the cure. When we do what Jesus did with a rich young ruler and open up those Ten Commandments and show the disease of sin, and we bring about fear and make them tremble as Felix trembled on the preaching of Paul, or as David trembled on the preaching of Nathan, or as the Philippian jailer uh, was trembled when that earthquake came, we need to give them a personal earthquake so fear will do its duty and rise in their heart they realize how serious sin is in the eyes of god then the cross will make sense that christ redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us so we need to go back to biblical methods and forsake our modern traditions ray do you wake up in the morning early and are you this eloquent <laughs> i mean seriously this is a stream of consciousness that's amazing no, I'm not. I'm trying not to like, embarrass you just, just a little. I've just, I've just done this before. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's so compelling. It, it, you know, when we want to lead people to be found, I think sometimes the harder work is leading them to understand that they're lost. 
You know, most people treat God as a divine butler, or we, as we do a, a sound man in our churches. You know, we can have the, the sound system working perfectly week after week after week, and suddenly there's a wail that comes through the microphone, and everybody turns around and glares at the sound man. Don't you know what you're doing? We're crazy. Fix that thing. And that's right. how people treat God. You know, he gives us the blue sky, the sound of birds in the morning, the music and love and laughter and food and friends and family, and lavishes his kindness upon us. And as soon as something goes wrong, people lift their fist at the heavens and say, God, what do you think you're doing? You owe me. And that comes from idolatry. It's not a right understanding that God gave us everything we've got. We're unthankful, ungrateful, and we use his name as a cuss word that is so prevalent throughout society that using the name of Jesus to as a cuss word what person in history has ever had their name used as a cuss word other than jesus and he tells us why in john 7 he says the world hates me because i testify of its deeds that they're evil the world hates god for the same reason criminals hate the police because they're criminals and the police stand for that which is right and that's why people hate god without cause they're unthankful unholy and use his name as a cuss word we're enemies of god in our minds through wicked works the bible says and we need to come to that rock of ages, which is clear for us to shelter us from God's goodness on the day of judgment. Mm-hmm. Ray Comfort is my guest. He is the founder and CEO of Living Waters. We're talking about his book, How to Make Sure God Hears Your Prayers. Ray, I got a two-part question, so I'll ask it in two parts. How's that? That sounds good. <laughs> yeah. So um, how, how does our response to sin reflect our fear of the Lord? I want to stay on this fear of the Lord topic because I think this is really important. Yeah, we, our conscience is very similar to a smoke detector. Sometimes smoke detectors can be really annoying. They'll go off for no reason. You cook something in your oven and it gets a little hot. Next thing, there's a wailing sound coming from up the hallway. The dog is wailing because he doesn't like the sound of it in the sensitive ears. And you're tempted to just go and pull those batteries out so you can cook without this thing <laughs> doing the thing. And that's what conscience is like. It wails at us when we do something wrong. Things get a little hot morally, and we want to take the batteries out. But that smoke detector is for our protection. It's for our good, and the conscience should be cultivated. The Apostle Paul said he strove to have a conscience void of offense towards God and man. He kept the batteries in. And so that sort of conscience that's uh, motivated by a fear of God and a knowledge that he holds us all responsible for every idle word, there's nothing hid from his eyes. All things lie open and exposed before the eyes of him. We have to give an account. That helps us walk in the fear of the Lord. And, and Bill, I, I am terrified of having a conscience that's not tender. I really want to walk in the fear of God because I know how wicked my heart is. I know how I'm tempted by pornography uh, all the time. Like every red-blooded male, your eyes just go towards things that you know are wrong. And it's the mm-hmm. fear of the Lord that helps me to have um, feet like Joseph had when Potiphar showed up and his wife, his lusty wife, he had on his running shoes. And that's what we've got to have when it comes to sexual sin, looking at things we know are inappropriate. Just have those shoes ready and just keep them on and run. And that's that's motivated by the fear of the Lord. And when we look at the life of Joseph, we see a man that was a, a type of Christ, uh, someone who walked in the fear of God, and, and we need to imitate him. And we can do that because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, Ray, here's part two of my two-part question. How how should we respond and and connect with people that we love, who we uh, see falling into sin, 
and we don't want to be judgmental or or hyper or hypocritical, but we just want to we want to do the right thing. How do we do that? Well, we need to share the gospel with them. If someone calls themselves a Christian and they're given to sin, there's something radically wrong. The Bible says, examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. And if you're serving sin, you might not be in the faith at all. And so I use two things that I uh, that I uh, use or two. How can I put it? I salt the oats. You know, it's been said you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That's just not true. That's a complete lie. You can salt the oats, so he'll want to drink. And there are certain ways to salt the oats of human beings and cause them to want what we have in Christ. And one way is to appeal to the will of will to live. Every human being is made in the image of God. We're not dogs, cats, horses, or cows. We have something in us that says, I don't want to die. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15, we are haunted by the fear of death all our lifetime. So when I meet a non-Christian, I'll say something like this to him. Say, uh, hey, Don, so I've got a question for you. Do you think there's an afterlife? He says, I don't know. Do you think about it much? He says, all the time. Are you afraid of dying? He says, yeah. I say, have you ever read the Bible? He says, no, no, I haven't. So you know the Old Testament God promised he would destroy death, and the New Testament tells us how he did it. And suddenly his eyes light up. Because no one said that to him before. The Old Testament, God promised to destroy death. The New Testament tells how he did it. So I say, I'm going to share the gospel with you. And I have to proceed it with the Ten Commandments to show you need God's mercy. Is that okay? And I say, sure. So I appeal to the will to live. You think of how a waitress approaches businessmen in a restaurant. She looks and three businessmen have walked in wearing three-piece suits, holding little black cases. They're obviously sitting at the table, wheeling and dealing millions of dollars. Is she intimidated? Not at all. She just walks up, boldly says, can I take your order? She butts in. They're half-sentenced. They're important men. Why she do that? It's because she knows she has what they want, food. That's why they're there. And we have what this world wants. They just don't understand that. They think we're religious when we've found everlasting life in Christ. Most of them at some gym, torturing themselves or drinking some liquid or eating some food they hate to try and extend their lives. And we have everlasting life in Christ. If only they knew. And so this is what Jesus did with a woman at the well in John chapter 4. He said, if you knew the gift of God, he was speaking to you, you'd ask him, he'd give you living water. So that is one of my confidences, how to salt the oats, appeal to the sinner's will to Hmm. live. He will listen. If he knows what we've got, we can get through to him. And the other thing is to appeal to his conscience. So with conscience means with knowledge. God has given light to every man. When someone's an atheist or agnostic or religious person, they have a conscience. They have a knowledge of right and wrong, and you can appeal to it by going through the Ten Commandments. It awakens the conscience. It gets mm-hmm. the uh, smoke detector doing its duty. Yeah. Ray, let me take a little break. Ray Comfort is my guest. He's the founder and CEO of Living Waters, and has uh, written over 100 books. The one we're chatting about today is how to Make sure God hears your prayers. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute.
Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. We are back. If you are just joining us, Ray Comfort is my guest. He's the founder and CEO of Living Waters and has uh, written over 100 books. The one we're chatting about today is how to make sure God hears your prayers. In his book, he says the reason people's hearts fail them is that they don't believe anyone is in control. If they could take control, they wouldn't be fearful. But those who fear God know that he is always in control. He's never taken by surprise or thrown into confusion. The same God who will fulfill his promise to judge the world will fulfill his promise to bless those who fear the Lord. The choice is ours. We can disobey and let sin rule in our lives, or we can trust God in obedience and come to him in prayer. Nice words, Ray. Oh, thank you. Can I share something that we're doing that's super exciting? I hope you do. Yeah. Well, about six months ago, I began thinking about what's going to happen on May the 6th of this year when King Charles uh, becomes uh, crowned or the coronation takes place. And I realized that he's going to be given an orb or holding an orb, which is a globe with a cross on the top, which is a picture of the reign of Jesus Christ of the whole earth. He's going to have two swords. One's a blunt sword, a sword of mercy, speaking of the gospel, another sharp sword, sword of justice. Um, he's going to lay his hand on the Bible and promise before God to uphold the biblical truth of salvation by grace through faith without works. And all this is going to be done in front of an audience of hundreds of millions around the world. And I thought, man, I'd like to produce a gospel tract, not endorsing King Charles, but doing what Paul did in Acts 17 when he quoted Greek poets. And what's he quoting, what is he quoting Greek poets for? He was using them as a bridge to reach his hearers. And that's what I was wanting to do with this coronation. So I thought it'd be great to get a track printed with a gospel on the back, with Charles on the front, a million dollar bill or like a 50 million pound or whatever. And I, I made a video and sent it to my team for their thoughts. And I received an email from a gentleman. And he said, what are you working on? So I told him, I sent him the video and he sent back $200,000 uh, to the ministry. I showed someone else the video. They sent 100,000. Someone else, I showed them video and they sent 50,000. So we're able to make this track available free of charge, and we pay the shipping. Uh, it's very exciting because the media understand, Christians don't understand because we've got our Jesus, he's our king, we're not bowing to any earthly king, but the world is infatuated with royalty. So hundreds of millions of non-Christians are going to go to church for two hours on May the 6th and hear uh, symbolic uh, symbolism of the gospel. So this is a wonderful opportunity. So if anyone wants to go to livingwaters.com forward slash London, we will send large quantities, a thousand at a time, of these uh, very, very um, beautifully produced gospel tracts uh, free of charge, and we'll pay the shipping anywhere in Europe, anywhere in England, anywhere in Australia or in New Zealand, or anywhere in the U.S. That's livingwaters.com forward slash London. Well, what a beautiful uh, gift that is, Ray. Thank you so much for that. All right, yeah, we only have excited about him. Yeah, we only have a couple, a couple minutes left. So, um, what do you say to those who pray, but they just don't feel God hears or answers their prayers? I know there's many listening right now that feel that, that they're in. That's the camp they're in. And you can, yeah, it's very, very common. You, you think, you know, I've got suffering in my family. Someone's suffering a terrible disease. Why doesn't God do something? We don't know why they're suffering. We know why they're 
We don't know why God doesn't answer our prayers when someone's suffering, but we do know why uh, there is suffering because we live in a fallen creation. But think what happened to Mary and Martha. They sent a message to Jesus saying, your friend whom you love, Lazarus, is sick. In other words, he'll obviously be here like grease lightning because you love him and he's your friend. But Jesus stayed where he was for two days because he had greater intentions. He wanted to do something far more marvelous than healing someone. He wanted to raise him from the dead. So often God's ways aren't our ways. We say, Lord, please do this. This needs to happen. But God sees into the future And his wisdom is infinitely greater than ours. And I love what Charles Spurgeon said when it comes to prayer. He said, faith may swim where reason may only paddle. So as Christians, when God doesn't zoom in and answer our prayers in the way he thinks we will, we just say, I trust him. I trust him with all my heart. I lean not to my own understanding, but I trust him because he keeps every promise he makes. And he promises to work all things to good, together for good, to those that love him and are called according to his purposes. Mm-hmm. Ray, do you have a fear of the Lord verse that you you keep handy all the time? Oh yes, yeah. Um, Proverbs nineteen twenty three, uh, through the fear of the Lord. Oh, he that has the fear of the Lord will abide satisfied; he will not be visited with evil. It's a wonderful verse, and there's a whole stack of verses, especially in Proverbs, that tell us that God's blessing and His ears are open to those that fear Him. So we need to cultivate the fear of God if we want God to hear our prayers. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ray, for taking time to uh, be on the show today. It's uh, always always a delight to talk to you. Great to talk to you, Bill. Thank you. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.